Yeah, I've, I've written for a traditional bow hunter and, and several other bow hunter magazines. Um, I hunt as much as I can. Uh, I, I primarily do do-it-yourself hunts because I've, I've been retired for a long time and and even though I'm not destitute, I, I am on a limited income. This is the Traditional Bow Hunter's Journey, a show brought to you by the Traditional Bow Hunter magazine and the Food Afield podcast. A series filled with the tips, techniques, and strategies from long-established traditional bow hunting experts. Welcome to the world of traditional and primitive archery and bow hunting. How to get started, how to get better. Um, so uh, I start in August uh, with Sitka blacktail. Then I try to hunt antelope, uh, although it's not looking good for this year. And then uh, whatever else I can get, whether it's mule deer or elk. Um, almost always hunt black bear in Colorado or New Mexico in September unless I have too much other stuff going on. Then I own property in Kansas. I, I live in New Mexico, um, which allows me to hunt, uh, you know, the, basically these four states close by, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. We own some land in Kansas where I grew up, so I hunt whitetails in Kansas. I have a place in Nebraska I've been hunting for eight years, and uh, then I finish out the year, you know, hopefully with a January mule deer hunt in New Mexico, and then I, I try to get to Mexico and hunt cow's deer, which I do, I don't know, I've done it uh, about five or six times in the last 13 years. So I stay pretty busy hunting. About every third or fourth year, I'll do a guided hunt somewhere, something that I just want to go hunt. Um, but over the years, I had, uh, until recently, I just had terrible luck with guided hunts spend a ton of money and don't even knock up an arrow and fortunately my last three or four guided hunts have been much better so I'm, I'm kind of getting over that. I grew up in a farm in Kansas and uh, took over the family farm, failed at that, moved to New Mexico to take a, a job running a sod farm which was basically just opportunity to get off the farm and get away from home otherwise I just kind of continue to fart around with it till I was totally broke and uh Moving out here gave me a chance to hunt a whole lot of other things. Um, New Mexico has 14 big eight, big game animals that it lists in its proclamation if you count turkey and javelina. So just huge opportunity here. And uh, I'm only 25 miles from the Colorado border, 40 miles from Utah and Arizona. So uh, I, I feel like I'm in a great spot to hunt a lot of things. Hey everybody, welcome to the Traditional Bowhunter's Journey, a series brought to you in cooperation with Traditional Bowhunter Magazine. Today I am honored and excited to be speaking with uh, Jim Willems. And Jim is the past president of the uh, Pope and Young Club. He has written numerous articles for various bow hunting magazines. And Jim hunts a lot and he hunts uh, all over the place. So I'm kind of excited to speak with him today about, you know, how to access hunting opportunities. This will come from a standpoint of you're just getting started in traditional bow hunting, you've been practicing, you, you're ready to start hunting, but you know, now what? How do we get tags? How, where do we go? How do we find these, uh, these uh, accessible opportunities? And um, I also want to talk to him about the Pope and Young Club as well. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, John. 
We've heard a little bit about you and, and your past life. Um, let's talk about some of your hunting trips. You are, you know, so proficient at hunting. I'm looking at your Instagram page right now, Jim Willems 505. And uh, yeah, you've got some great uh, animals that you've been able to put on the ground. I, it's uh, you're, you're obviously very successful with bow hunting. Let's start there. How long have you been bow hunting? How long did uh, it take well- you to get good at it? Well, I'll, I'll let you know when I get good at it. So <laughs> I, I started in the late seventies. Uh, I grew up in Kansas. Uh, my dad was a farmer, uh, a part-time farmer and a truck driver. And, and I grew up on a family farm hunting and fishing and trapping was my life. And, uh, in the seventies, you had to wait till you're 16 years old before you could even apply for a deer tag. And my dad was a rifleman and a shotgunner and, and he'd been a machinist and a gunsmith. So early on, I was really into guns. I I was just a gun nut. And when I was 16 years old, I drew my first rifle deer tag in Kansas. And, uh, at that point, um, I had maybe seen three or four deer in my entire life in Kansas. That's how few the, how low the population was. But, uh, long story short, I didn't get it. It was a buck only tag. I didn't get one with my rifle. Uh, didn't have really very good places to hunt. And, uh, the, the rules at that time, if you drew a rifle tag, you couldn't even apply the next year. You had to set out for a year, but you could get a bow tag every year. And, and my older brother, Dan, he had kind of gone the same route, uh, the year before, and he had taken up bow hunting the year I drew the rifle tag. And so I just followed in his footsteps. And so this would have been about 78, somewhere in there. And, and at the time, you know, compounds were were huge and I only knew a handful of bow hunters and, and one or two of them shot traditional equipment still, but the rest of them all shot compounds because that was, that was a new and big thing. So, so we hunted with compound bones, bows for a few years, um, ended up, uh, hunting elk in Colorado and New Mexico early on. I think my first hunt was, I was 18 or 19 and uh, just got to know a few guys that shot traditional. In in fact, one guy, uh, one of my old heroes, he had uh, he had bow hunted the first two um, deer seasons in Kansas with a recurve bow back in the '60s, and and shot two great bucks. He he was just one of those guys that was an incredible hunter. And he was talking about how he could hit a paper plate at 40 yards, and I'd, I'd shot a recurve a little bit, and that just seemed impossible. But he, he said, I, I was consistent to 40, and, and of course, he, he had the, the proof of it. So, so I actually bought a recurve bow from him. It was a, uh, a wing chaparral, about a 56-pound. And, and then I ended up with a, uh, a bear grizzly 68 pound. Cause I didn't think the wing was heavy enough. You know how we were <laughs> back then yeah, <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, shot those for a while. And then I decided I, I got to know G Fred Asbell and, and tried out a few bighorn custom bighorn recurves and, and man, I just thought they, that was the stuff. Uh, you got to have a bow like that. So I had to sell my compound bow to buy the, uh, the bighorn recurve, um, which was good because I had no choice. I couldn't turn back. I couldn't say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt with the recurve. And if I don't do any good, then I'll get the compound out. I, I literally had one no more. So I think it was 1983. I, I made the switch, got a bighorn takedown and, and have been shooting traditional ever since then. 
That's a great story. Yeah, exactly. We all kind of started out. I think I had the, uh, well, I, I don't think, I know. I had the uh, Browning Deluxe Nomad uh, compound bow. That was my very first bow that I harvested a deer with. And and mine was the uh, Browning Explorer 2, the wood handle oh, yeah. four-wheel bow. Had 80-pound limbs on it, and I, I killed my first deer with that. <laughs> 80 pounds, holy yeah. cow. And back then, it was only, what, like 40 or 45% let off or something like that too, right? Oh, it wasn't much at all. I, I don't know. Yeah, but, if that. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah, we all, uh, people of our age, we have similar backgrounds, don't we, when it comes to traditional bow hunting, for sure. Yes, we do. Um, so... The, the one thing I'm interested in, though, is I've been talking to, you know, a lot of not necessarily younger people, but, you know, some of they're younger than me. Right. And they're they're really getting into the science of traditional or traditional archery, you know, um, and the tuning and uh, the form and the aiming. And and I think it's wonderful. I mean, um, but the one realization I've come to is that. Uh, you and I probably just learned through sheer repetition how to aim what we were looking at. Um, is that the case for you or do you actively, are you doing something different? Like what, what is your style of shooting? I guess well, I, 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 I shoot split finger and I shoot instinctive. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was a time when people say, well, you gotta be, you gotta be referencing the tip of your arrow at some point, especially if you're shooting longer ranges. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I am. Um, but I never really give it a lot of thought and, and it, it literally is repetition and, and over and over and over again. And then I, I realized, you know what, sometimes I'll shoot a 28 inch arrow. And if the, the spine's a little heavier, it might be a 29 inch arrow and the broadheads are different. And so I can't be gap shooting if I'm shooting different length arrows, at least I don't think I can. And, mm-hmm. and what, what really, uh, set it off was I was, I was doing a little shooting demonstration for, uh, uh, Dylan Ray, he does the Hunting 101 podcast for for uh, bear archery, and uh, he said, "Well, it, it and we were shooting indoors at Cabela's at like five yards." And he said, "Well, at this at this range, where's your point on?" And I was like, "Man, I don't know." <laughs> what so, are you talking about? So, so I, I drew back and held, and then looked at my point, and I said, "Well, it's at the bottom of the target, which is like three feet low, you know, or something like that." And, and then I realized, you know, I, I just, I can't be gap shooting if I'm not, if I don't know what the, where the point's at when I'm shooting. So, yeah, exactly. So the, uh, the, the only thing I really do a little different than, than some people is I, I try to anchor and hold and, and I switched to a clicker, oh, maybe 20 years ago because, you know, I went through it all. I, the target panic, the short draw, the pluck in the string, you know, you get back and you're shaking because you can't get it to, to the anchor point and all the stuff that people go through. And, and eventually I settled in with the clicker and I, I do a fairly slow draw, uh, look at the target. And if I can concentrate on the spot and come to full draw and make it click, um, out to about 40 yards, I'm just almost a hundred percent. And, and if I, if I miss, it's because I, I didn't do one of those things. I, I didn't pick a spot or a snapshot or I didn't come to full draw one of those. But if I can uh, slow down and concentrate on the spot and, and make it click, then I'm, I'm pretty deadly. And, and the results show it over the years. You know, I went from, I don't know, probably less than 50% uh, 
shooting at animals to, uh, um, you know, now I, I may, might miss one animal a year and, you know, half the time they're ducking the air on them, you know, knocking hair off the top of their back. So I, I've kind of got into my shooting routine and, and if I get, get it all right, it works pretty darn good. Maybe I'll just back up a little bit. There are some people who are new to all of this terminology that listen to the show. So, you know, when we're talking about target panic, that is something that happens to a lot of archers. It's pretty common. It is sort of a reflection or it is a reflex uh, of pointing the bow, pointing the arrow at a target and then not being able to quite get to full draw before you just automatically release the arrow. It's a psychological thing that that is difficult to overcome and it uh, it does impact uh, accuracy a lot. So when Jim is talking about that target panic, that's more or less what everybody experiences. Um, the clicker is a device that um, has a string attached to it and, and it is attached to the back of the top limb usually, um, but it, I don't think it matters. Um, and uh, the other end of the string is attached to the bowstring itself. So when you hit a prescribed distance, it will make a, an audible click. And then that's how Jim knows to release this, the, uh, the arrow. So um, let's talk a bit about, before we get right into the meat and potatoes of, you know, how do we access hunting uh, opportunities, Jim, I wouldn't mind talking with you about the Pope and Young Club. Um, maybe just give people that are new to this to this lifestyle uh, an idea of what how the Pope and Young Club started um, and why it still exists today. Okay. Uh, you know, back in the day, we're, we're talking the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, field archery was extremely popular. Uh, per capita basis, probably way more popular than it is now. And, and that was, you know, it started out with with long bows, and then people moved into recurves and long bows. And and uh, in the late 50s, the, the field archery, um, or the NFAA was the uh, Field Archery Association, the National Field Archery Association. That's NFAA, and and they had a bow hunting wing that you know just like today worked with with legislation and trying to help establish bow hunting seasons in in the various states. And uh, our original founder, one of our founding members, uh, Glenn St. Charles, he was in charge of the the bow hunting portion of the NFAA. Uh, and, and at the time he felt like, well, we, we need to, uh, um, spread out from NFAA and have our own national organization. And, and he wanted to mirror the Boone and Crockett club because he, he admired what they had done with conservation from the 1870s on, which, which really brought us the hunting and the, the animals and the opportunities we have today. So he was proud of, and he was a member of, Pope, of uh, Boone and Crockett. So he was proud of what they'd done. So, so he and a few other guys that, that had been part of the NFAA, they got together and, and uh, branched out and started the, the Pope and Young Club in, in, uh, um, in the late fifties, it, it was officially incorporated in 1961. So, uh, we just passed our, our 60th year a few years back and, and the, the Pope and Young Club, the original purpose, which it still is, 
was to quantify uh, the effectiveness of the bow and arrow as a hunting weapon and use the, that, uh, those statistics to open up more opportunities throughout the country. And it was wildly successful, obviously, because we have, you know, bow hunting only seasons in every state in the United States and, and uh, some provinces in Canada. And, and it's actually been so successful that people take it for granted that it's always been that way. And, and it wasn't 100% the Pope and Young Club, but it really was all of the same men and women whether they worked for the state organizations or the Pope and Young Club or the NFAA or, or whatever, it was all the same people um, working to accomplish the same thing. And and eventually we showed that we were so successful that, um, well, well, for an example, Colorado back in the uh, 60s, you could only bow hunt, I believe, antelope and deer, and they, they wouldn't let you bow hunt anything else. So using the, the Pope and Young Club's statistics and, and our record system, uh, they were able to go to the Colorado Division of Wildlife and say, hey, you know, in other states, they're, they're killing elk all the time with a bow and arrow. And, and you just incrementally get, get seasons opened up a little bit at a time. And, and everybody thinks it's the, uh, you know, Pope and Young Club, it's a record keeping organization, which it is. And, and our records originally were for, uh, uh, creating opportunity and the records still are used by game and fish departments. And, and we, we get all kinds of requests from people doing various studies that want to see the statistics on various species, um, in different States or nationwide. Um, it, it's still important to have that data, and and another important part of the records program is is we consistently hear the anti hunters talk about how trophy hunting and selective hunting is is bad for the sport and and depletes the uh, the upper end of the population and takes out the strongest and our records indicate that they, they it's exactly opposite of that we keep breaking records year after year after year and the the animals get bigger and bigger and and that's part of the selective hunting process where if you're targeting the oldest and the, the past its prime animal and you're taking that one, the, that obviously, according to our records, is beneficial to the overall herd, uh, the health of the herd. Mm-hmm. I'm going to back you up a little bit because you've said a bunch of words there that maybe people won't quite understand. So basically, as I understand it, the Pope and Young Club was an advocacy group that was, um, you know, modeling the Boone and Crockett Club. So the Boone and Crockett Club did what for hunting? What was Uh, its purpose? Its purpose, well, its original purpose was to chronicle the vanishing big game species of North America. When they first came together, they they could anticipate when most of these big game animals were extinct because of market hunting and and uh, you know uh, no game game laws really whatsoever. So their original purpose was to to show people that these animals used to exist when they're gone. Well, they <laughs> they got past that by uh, bringing in some very intelligent naturalist type people that came up with ways to uh, convince people that, okay, you have to stop over hunting, whether it's ducks or deer or turkeys or or all of these animals. We we have to have laws and we have to have seasons. We have to have limits. And the Boone and Crockett Club really was the, the originators of what we now call the North American model of wildlife conservation, which, which um, is 
basically uh, conservation is wise use or the best use of a resource. And the best use of a re- resource is to maintain the healthiest population uh, at, at, that's possible. And, you know, that way you make sure that the population isn't overpopulated, but when it begins to underpopulate, then you limit the hunting um, to to keep from uh, drastically underpopulating the population. And and to their credit, the eventually the Boone and Crockett Club, you know, they, they did such a good job throughout the country working with state wildlife agencies that, you know, by the uh, 1930s and 40s, these, these big game were starting to come back. And then we're having seasons where we can actually get out and, and enjoy sport hunting again. And today, you, you don't even consider that those days even existed. In search of a superior archery tab? Look no further than NovemArchery.com, your ultimate destination for the exceptional archery tab. At Novem, we take pride in delivering products of the highest standards. Our archery tabs are crafted with precision and care, ensuring the perfect balance of innovation, functionality, and style. Whether you're a seasoned pro or taking your first steps into the world of archery, we aim to be your trusted companion. Discover the Novem difference. Visit NovemArchery.com today and embrace archery at its finest. That's N-O-V-E-M Archery.com. The Pope and Young Club came into being. That sort of had a different focus, though, didn't it? Um, maybe describe its focus. You know, what was it advocating for and, and why did it have to advocate? Well, the, the focus was to open bow hunting seasons in as many places as possible. And they had to do that because there was, in 1961, not every state had a bow hunting season. Uh, some states would let you hunt with a bow and arrow uh, during the rifle hunt. Some states wouldn't let you hunt at all. Mm-hmm. And a, a handful of states had a, a designated bow hunting season, um, but most did not. So so the purpose was, let's get as many bow hunting opportunities as we can. And there was some, well, they didn't believe in the efficiency or the, even the effectiveness of bow hunting, did they? They did not. And so it had to be proven. And, and to be proven, you have to do it. And, and there were states that, that gave out experimental tags. So a handful of guys that were, you know, typically the leaders in the industry at the time uh, could go out and shoot a few animals and come back and say, okay, that I did that. That wasn't that hard. And, and uh, the arrow went clear through the elk. So obviously the arrow isn't the issue. It's, it's public perception is the issue. And, and, you know, we look back and and it, it's a good thing that this all happened during the basically the longbow and early recurve era, when when our success was really low. You know, you'd send out a hundred bow hunters during the archery deer season, and they might kill three or four deer. So we had such a small impact on the overall herd. <clears throat> we weren't really a uh, a tool to manage the population, but we were a tool to maximize days in the field. And, and so that's how we ended up with these long seasons and, and seasons during the rut, uh, particularly white-tailed deer. You know, we, a lot of states, they'd start back then first of October and in December 31st, whereas the rifle hunt was a week or two. And because we were uh, limited with our traditional equipment, we got really good seasons in in the best time frame of the year and long seasons really liberal seasons if that were to happen today with with the compound bow and and 
don't even get me started on a crossbow. <clears throat> Our seasons would certainly be shorter because the that equipment makes you so much more successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's just touch on this quickly. I don't know that I'll keep this as part of the episode, but I am curious on your take with regards to trophy hunting. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that when you mention the word trophy hunting, it has a negative connotation. Whereas in the past, you know, if somebody shot a big buck, the entire general population would look at that as a as, as an amazing achievement and something to be proud of and and uh, it was newsworthy even right if a, especially a bow hunter shot a big buck or a big bull elk or something that somehow changed where it's a dirty word now but i'm anxious to hear your take on that as a as a past president of an organization who's at least on the outward appearances, the primary focus is record keeping, and you have a minimum standard of antler, you know, size and things like that. How do you sort of reconcile those two things? Well, it, it, it's my opinion that trophy hunting is the assault weapon of the the bow hunting vernacular. They they have taken a word that used to, like you said, it used to be revered and be a great thing, and and they have falsely attach that to you just shoot the animal and cut the head off and leave the rest of it lay. I don't know any trophy hunter that does that. Now, I don't deny that that doesn't happen, but there's criminal and unethical and immoral activity that goes on in anything. And and just like <clears throat> they use assault weapon as a, a tool to uh, vilify uh, firearms, you know, an assault weapon is, is a, a firearm that's capable of fully automatic fire. And you and I can't own a, a gun that's capable of fully automatic fire. They're already banned. They've been banned for decades. So so they take a word uh, and turn it into uh, an evil thing and the uneducated public just runs with it. They you know enough people scream that this is what it is even when it's not. And uh you know I, I'm a I am a trophy hunter. I'm a proud trophy hunter. I hunt the oldest animal I can find in, in any given opportunity. And the and there's two reasons why I do that. One is it, it's harder. It is obviously harder to kill the oldest and the wisest. And the other is you'll get twice as much meat off of a six-year-old buck as you will a year-and-a-half-old buck. And you can kill a year-and-a-half-old buck relatively easy, and your hunt's over. You hunt a six-year-old buck, and you might hunt four weeks and not even see it. So, uh, so I, I vehemently defend the word trophy hunter and try to take back the wording i don't know if we ever will but i am i am a proud trophy hunter in in the original sense of that word uh good words jim i have often described myself as a meat hunter i guess i would say i i do not see this is my sort of conflict at least in my head is like i go well i'm not a trophy hunter you know but man alive, there's something pretty neat about, you know, getting your hands on, on a, you know, 150 or 160 class uh, set of antlers, right? That it's still an accomplishment. Your heart still beats faster. And um, yeah, so all of those things that you said are definitely true. Um, and they are, it is a, uh, a thing, I think, to aspire to for sure. Those were good words, Jim. Thank you for okay. that. Thanks. Heritage, lifestyle, community. 
We at Traditional Bowhunter Magazine strive to provide the best traditional experience for you. Our goal is to encourage a welcoming community focused on a lifestyle that honors the heritage of the traditional bow. In the bi-monthly magazine issues, you can read about hunts in faraway places and close to home, wild game cooking, how-tos, technique advice, beginner-friendly articles, and wisdom from our beloved experts. You'll also find businesses that have the tools you need to get out into the woods. Want to start reading now? Download the app and enjoy the digital magazine for $10 a year. Just search Traditional Bowhunter Magazine in your favorite app store. Want a print subscription? Subscribe online at tradbow.com and don't forget to place the code FOODAFIELD at the checkout. Traditional Bowhunter Magazine, bringing the traditional community together since 1989. Let's go into now. I have acquired my bow and I'm gotten proficient with shooting what first of all what do you consider to be proficient enough before you go out hunting well um proficient enough is probably consistently in a a four or five inch circle at your maximum range and if your maximum range is only five yards you can still go hunting just don't shoot over five yards if your maximum range is 15 or 20 yards then then that's fine but you know, back in the day, it was keep it in a pie plate. Well, that's that's not good enough for a deer. A pie plate's just a little too big. You need to be in a five or six inch circle uh, to consistently be in the lungs. So that's what I consider proficient. And as far as the going out to hunting, like I said, if you can hit that at 30 yards, then you know, you're likely to take shots at 30 yards. If, if at 40 yards, you're shooting a 10 inch circle and don't shoot 40 yards. So, Mm -hmm. so everybody needs to know in bow hunter education, you know, for years and years and years, your maximum effective range and and your maximum effective range might be 10 yards or it might be 30 or 40, depending on just your level of experience. So uh, your range is more important than anything else. Yeah, I agree. And then just keep it within, like be moral and ethical, as you mentioned. And, you know, I would say that my my range is inside of 20 yards, just the way I shoot and um, and my confidence in my shooting. I mean, I've been doing it for 40 plus years, but, you know, all of my deer that I've ever harvested have been inside of 20 yards. So I think that's a danger when you hear people saying, you know, on social media and, and oh, I'm drilling nails at 40 yards, right? Well, yeah, you might be, and somebody like you certainly is, but all of the work and effort that went into being that proficient at it is not achievable for everybody. So I don't know. I like, I like those words. If you're good out to 10 yards, then just hunt at 10 yards and know that's your limit. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're ready to go hunting. We can hit that four inch circle consistently, um, at, you know, 15 yards and we've, we want to hunt now. Um, I would imagine that every state more or less, am I wrong about this statement? Every state more or less has local hunting opportunities. Is that an accurate statement? I, I believe it is. And if it's not, I don't know what state that would be. Um, because I know people in, in every state that bow hunt. Uh, so, so what, what, what do you consider an opportunity? Is it, is it public land or is it access to private land? Either one of those can be an opportunity. And, Mm -hmm. and I believe every state has some level of public land that you can hunt. So anybody in their home state, um, if you have an over the counter license, 
uh, can find a place to hunt. Now, there, there are states like in New Mexico, um, everything's a drawing except for black bear and cougar, and then they have a quota. But if you want to hunt deer, unless you find uh, you, you can get a voucher to hunt on private land, uh, you have to enter the drawing in April and, and hope you get a tag. And basically every other species is the same. But mm. for the most part, uh, most states you can find a place to hunt. And, and even the states that have that are, are drawing for every species, there's usually a few units <clears throat> that are relatively easy to draw. You may not get a tag every year, but there's there's places where you can get tags pretty consistently. And and uh, if you're willing to spend a little bit of money, you can go to the next state over and probably find a place to hunt. And mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I, I really advocate is expand your opportunities. There's There's plenty of places to hunt take a week off and go to another state and, and hunt, you know, hunt public ground if you have to, but find a place to hunt. And, and you know, we could get into the, the aspects of finding places on private. Um, it can be done. Sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's really hard. Uh, but it's, it's really all about determination is probably what decides whether or not you're going to go hunting. Hundred percent. Yeah. Up here in Canada, we have a difference. We have so much open space and so much farmland that it's actually relatively easy to just walk up to a farm, uh, knock on the door and get permission to hunt. Um, we're not allowed up here in Alberta, at least anyways, we're not allowed to pay for the access. So no money is allowed to transact. Um, for the privilege of hunting, but you can certainly get permission. Um, and you can share venison and you can offer to help around the farm and do chores. But, you know, for the most part, you don't even need to do that. And I understand it's different in the States. But. Yeah, boy, I, I just can't imagine how beneficial that would be if they would make it illegal for, for leasing. The the leasing in the lower 48 has gotten so out of hand. Um, it it makes it hard for a young person on with a low income to, to find a place to hunt. But it's still possible. Well, There's still places to hunt. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk to that person. Um, you know, I don't know, like pick a state. You live in, I don't know, like a heavily populated state, or maybe you live in a heavy, heavily populated city. You're in New York City, for instance. I actually have quite a few listeners in New York City and other, and Toronto and different highly populated cities. And you want to get into hunting. I mean, first of all, you're going to have to find a place to get proficient with your bow, which might be a challenge in and of itself. But um, like you said, there's public land where a good friend of mine, Blaine Prouse, lives on Haidegwai and his archery company is called Stump Stalker. And so he spends a lot of his time just meandering about the woods, the rainforest, shooting at rotten stumps. And I suspect most places have those opportunities where you can take your bow to public land at any time of year and shoot at anthills and rotten stumps and things like that. So that can be enjoyable in and of itself. But we're at the point now where we're ready to hunt. Um, You talked about going to another state. Well, let's start there. So how do you, and I suppose it's species specific too, isn't it? So I want to hunt whitetails in, I don't know, Kansas. Um, how do I do that? What, where do I start? Where do I look for the opportunities and, and how do I, how do I figure this all out? So, so there, there's two major components to that. Well, well, there's three. The first one I talked about was uh, determination. You have to decide I'm going to do this. 
<clears throat> but then the other two components is research and networking, and they both go hand in hand. You could you could do one without the other, um, but where I have found my best places to hunt is through networking and, and you could do it with social media, but I started out, you know, before social media and what really benefited me in, in my early years was, uh, joining, <clears throat> I was from Kansas. So I joined the Kansas bow hunters association, go to the banquets and talk to the older bow hunters who had been hunted a lot of different things. And then you, you talk to guys that hunt different States and, and, I could drive to Colorado and New Mexico, and at the time, the, the plenty of over-the-counter elk and deer tags. So uh, you just you could just decide to go. And I had been on vacation in, in the mountains in Colorado, and I'd seen a few elk and public land. So I thought, well, I can get a tag, and I can just go up there and start hunting. And that's literally what we did. Um, and 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 fortunately. In the early '80s, there there just weren't as many bow hunters there are now, and and there were more elk at the time too. So you ha- you could actually have a pretty good hunt, almost just stumbling into the elk. And New Mexico was a little different because I'd never been there before. But uh, my parents knew a man that lived in New Mexico who was he was a rifle hunter and hunted elk a little bit. I'm not sure he'd ever killed an elk, but he did okay with mule deer and talked to him and he said, yeah, I, I think I know a place where some guys kill some elk. So my brother and I drive to New Mexico and he points us at a trailhead and says, go up there and hunt. And, uh, that, that's really all we did. And you, you wander around until you hear an elk bugle and then you get excited and you try to sneak up on it and, and you try to call it in and you do all kinds of things to try to kill an elk. And, and, and certainly we were horrible at all of this when you first start, but we could start. The opportunity was there. And there's, there's still places where Colorado has over-the-counter elk tags still. Um, not a great hunt anymore because it's over-pressured. But if, if you're in pretty good shape and you're determined, you, you take a week or 10 days and, you know, you might get a chance at an elk. Two or three of you go out. One guy will probably get a chance at an elk and hopefully kill one. And that's pretty good for, for starting out. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, probably the easier opportunities are, are on the Eastern States where the whitetail licenses are fairly easy to get. Some of them are over the counter. Some of them are, are more than one buck and, and all of those States have walk-in hunting. They have national parks, national grasslands, some national forest. There's a Corps of engineer land around all the reservoirs that some allow hunting, some don't, uh, some allow hunting, but you have to, it's kind of like getting a camping spot. You have to apply for the week to hunt. Um, some of those places can be really good and, and are really overlooked and, and the, the walk-in hunting, you know, just like all public hunting, it's a little tougher, but occasionally you find one that's under hunted and, and you find a good buck that you can target a little bit. And, uh, or if you're just out for the opportunity, uh, you know, they're, plenty of places that have does and small bucks that aren't over hunted and you can go out and take a small buck or a doe on a three or four day hunt and be successful and be happy. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Great advice. Um, And then there's other opportunities as well that maybe like 
talk to me about turkeys. Like all of a sudden in the last, I don't know, 40 years or something, you know, turkeys are just everywhere, right? Um, and I know that in BC, for instance, I can go hunt turkeys um, with an over-the-counter license. It's not even a big game license. It's just a uh, uh, an upland bird license. So, um, and then the other opportunity I think that we should probably talk about is pigs. Again, it occurs to me that wild pigs are a big problem in a lot of states in the U.S. So are those two sort of uh, opportunities more accessible to new people than, say, elk and, you know, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and turkeys especially because almost every state has turkeys now. And almost all of them are over the counter. And, and a lot of them are two tags in the spring and two tags in the fall. Uh, oh, wow. But, you know, we'll focus on the spring primarily because that's when most people do it because you, you can call in the gobblers and, and it really is a lot of fun. Oh man, I did it for the first time this year and just, I'm in love with it. So much but, fun. But a lot of, a lot of landowners will let you hunt turkeys, but won't let you hunt deer because the deer is more valuable and they, they have family members that hunt deer and the, the turkey's just a menace because it eats their crop. So it's a lot easier to find a place to hunt turkeys in the spring. Um, oh, there you go. And with the technology now, uh, I, I, like I said, I own some land in Kansas and I get two or three or four calls a year from people I don't, I've never met. I don't know. And I don't even know how they get my phone number other than they, uh, they look at, uh, you know, one of the mapping programs like Onyx, see who owns the property. And then I guess they Google my name and find a phone number and they call me up and say, Hey, can I hunt turkeys here? That happens mm-hmm. a lot, you know, only mm-hmm. once or twice a year for deer because they understand that, yeah, most people that that own good deer hunting, if they hunt deer, they're they're just going to let their family and friends hunt. It's harder to find a place to hunt. And then pigs, uh, you know, that's a year round opportunity. The wild pigs, and and a lot of it is on private land, and you're you're probably going to pay a trespass fee, but it's a few hundred dollars um, unless you're hunting at a nice ranch where they have nice facilities. You know, for four or five, six hundred dollars, you can do a four day hunt, and and man, what a, what a way to learn how to hunt is to hunt an animal where you have two or three stocks a day and it's perfect for a beginning bow hunter because that's one of the hardest things as a beginner, you know, you can shoot targets all day long, but when you get an animal in front of you and it, it doesn't matter if it's a rabbit or a deer, once you intend to kill that animal, the, the, the nerves kind of take over and, and I, you know, you, you hope you don't miss. That's what's going through your head. Hold it together and make the shot. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, maybe not so much with rabbits, but, you know, I, I had a period during my life when I was trying to shoot a bobcat with my bow, and I don't know how many bobcats I missed. They would just get me so shook up, and I couldn't seem to hit them. Um, but, but like I said, once you decide you're going to shoot an animal, it, it changes the dynamics, and it's harder to do. Mm, yeah. Interesting. And we haven't even talked about small game, really, because that would be, you know, even the most accessible thing, I suspect. That's stuff you can do in somewhere, uh, a short drive away from your house, I suspect. You know, rabbits, hares, squirrels, uh, things like that. Um, The thing I find interesting about pig hunting, I mean, I know a lot of people, I guess especially traditional bow hunters that hunt pigs and understand the value of that. But it doesn't seem to be as big a thing as I would think it is because 
I can't imagine a better food outcome than than uh, pork, you know, like, oh my goodness, that would be, I know that's something I would be focused on for sure. Well, yeah, I, I get that. And, and like you said, you know, there are uh, groups of traditional bow hunters that do it year after year. It's kind of a, a set thing. We go every year in February or March mm-hmm. and they do it. And I, I kind of get not doing it because I, <clears throat> I've actually only gone pig hunting once, I guess, on a real pig hunt. And with me, it was my time off was so limited. Yeah. Growing a business and having a family, um, I took all my time off, what little I had for, for hunting deer and elk and antelope. And and uh, then I worked my butt off through the winter and the spring so I could take another week off come August or September. Um, so I never really never really got into it. And, and now that I'm retired and I have time to do it, um, they're, they're all doing the pig hunts while it's while I'm helping the Pope and Young Club with all the sportsman shows and manning booths and and speaking at various places and you know I I, I need to be home sometimes so I, I can't be gone all the time so I just really haven't taken up the pig hunting but I, I remember when my when my daughter was younger they they had a they have a special youth hunt for javelina in New Mexico and it's a drawing and that's what one thing that always pissed me off is it should have been a hundred percent draw for youth but it wasn't it was maybe 50 percent at best but you had a longer season and you could go down during spring break and javelin is a perfect animal for a young person to hunt because well they're, they're, if you can find them they're kind of stupid they don't see very well and they're easier to get close to and um everything about them is is perfect for kids hunting so my daughter did that for a few years. So oh, cool. there, there's those opportunities. Yeah. I, I love those opportunities as a way to get started. Right. And then you can evolve as you did into just being more focused on the species that you'd like to target. Right. We all have our favorite species for sure. Yeah. Well, Jim, I think that covered it all. That was, that was really interesting to hear your take on some of these things. I sure hope that the people listening that want to get into the traditional bow hunting lifestyle um, will hear your words and uh, not hesitate to get out and do it. Thank you for everything that you've done with the Pope and Young Club. Uh, thank you for all of your hard work on, like you said, those trade shows and, and your speaking. Um, all of the articles that you've written for traditional bow hunter magazine yeah just thank you for uh for helping us out yeah thanks for having me i, I always enjoy talking bow hunting i don't care where it's at and uh, this is just another forum for that 